Okay, welcome to day 342 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Zechariah chapters 5 through 8 and the book of Jude. Okay, so in Zechariah chapter 5, we see that formula that has introduced different phases in this vision that Zechariah the prophet is having. I think it's important to note that this is the same vision, but remember, I lifted up my eyes and saw, we saw that both in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 18, and in chapter 2, verse 1. And what does he see? He's a, he sees a flying scroll. So now what he's about to see in this chapter uh, is basically various ways of talking about evil in the land and uh, what God is going to do about that. Not getting into a lot of specifics, but essentially the uh, the assurance that God, uh, number one, is not going to tolerate wickedness among the uh, the among his fully inaugurated kingdom, which is being uh, which is being foreseen here. Um, now, in using that language, I should probably note that there are real eschatological arrows that point to the future throughout the book of Zechariah, in, meaning that. Uh, there are certain things that are uh, that are applicable to the post-exilic community, but there are clearly a lot of things, even things that we have seen so far, uh, that that go far beyond that, and that really talk about God's kingdom that He will establish in Christ, um, and some of the stuff which is still future, right? In that the 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 kingdom that we live in right now is a kingdom of, as it's sometimes called, already not yet, right? Let's some of this stuff is already inaugurated, but it will be fully inaugurated at Christ's second coming. So I think it's important to keep that in the mi- in mind. Like, this is not necessarily a promise that God is totally going to purge the post-exilic community of evil. In fact, that does not happen, and, and what becomes of that community by the time that Jesus is around, right? They're willing to, to crucify the Messiah. That is not everybody who exists, but certainly um, their religious leaders, the high priesthood, and stuff like that. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. But he sees a flying scroll, and um, he and he's asked, what do you see? And Zechariah says, well, I see a, a flying scroll. Wow, big surprise there. And uh, its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. Um, and, and then it is announced to him immediately what this is. This is the curse that goes over the goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. Okay, so you've got a scroll with writing on both sides, and the one side of this huge scroll um, indicates what will happen to those who steal. And then everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So here, theft um, and swearing falsely uh, addressed on the, the two different sides of the scroll— with these two sins standing for all sin. And this scroll represents the curse that God has for those who do such things. He says, I will send it out, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely. So this, the curse that is written on this, uh, on this scroll um, is to be uh, will, will enter the lives. The, uh, it, will, it, will, it will become true in the lives of those who continue to do evil, and it shall remain in his house and consume his house, both timber and stones. And then he sees another um, 
element of this vision. Then the angel who talked with me, whom we know well by now, came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what is going out. And Zechariah's like, what, what is it? And, and he tells him, this is the basket that is going out. So he sees a basket. And, well, like anyone would ask, if you see a basket, well, what's in the basket? So the, the leaden cover, so this, this, this heavy cover, right, it's there so that it's, it's hard to remove, um, is lifted up, and there's a woman in it, a woman in the basket. And the interpretation is immediately given. This is wickedness. So we might call this lady wickedness in a basket. Whereas, you know, we saw the scroll representing uh, theft and, uh, and swearing falsely. Now we have just wickedness in general. And what does he do with wickedness in general, with lady wickedness? He thrusts her back into the basket, thrusts down that leaden weight on its, on its offering, and then uh, he sees two women, two other women coming forward. So this is a vision of a bunch of women, and these women have wings, wings of a stork, and they lift up the basket with the leaden weight and and lady wickedness inside, um, up between earth and heaven, so into the sky. And Zechariah is like, "Hey, angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket?" And he's an- and he is answered to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. Like, that's where it belongs. That's where it will be staying. And Shinar, of course, is a reference to the um, area in which Babylon is um, used, for example, in the Table of Nations, Genesis 10.10. This is where the Tower of Babel is built in Genesis 11. Uh, remember one of the kings who attacks um, the uh, the cities of the valley in Genesis 14 is from Shinar. And you got Shinar a few other places in the Bible that's mentioned. Um, And again, I lifted my eyes. So now another phase of the vision, chapter 6. And what does he see? Well, he sees a vision of four chariots um, being pulled. Each one is being pulled by two horses. And the horses are of different colors, red, white, dappled, and black. Now, what does this remind us of? Well, it should remind us of the first part of the vision that he saw back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, where there were four horses, um, and there are, you know, a bunch of similarities. So in both uh, in both visions, you have horses, um, and uh, their riders are patrolling. Here it, it will be said that they are going to patrol. And then you also have a re- uh, an emphasis on rest. Remember that we patrolled the, the earth in chapter 1, verse 8, and it was all at rest. And here... Um, ultimately in verse uh, 8, they will be going to put uh, the Spirit of God at rest in the North Country. So it's probably valid to view this as kind of an inclusio. So Zechariah 1 through 6 then, um, at least this part of verse 6, um, gives us this the series of visions within a, a single vision, and it is framed by a vision of horses. And remember that the horses that we saw in the first vision, well, first of all, remember I said that like it's probably a um, fruitless task to try to speculate on what the colors all mean. And I'm going to say that with these as well. But there is clearly a thematic connection here. And I'll I'll say what that is in, in just a minute. So these four chariots appear from between two mountains and the significance of the mountains and they're, they're described as mountains of bronze is... You know, cl- clearly it's it's unclear. 
Um, it, interpretations range from uh, anywhere from like these represent God's dwelling place to these represent the kingdoms of the world. Remember, I said that in four seven mountains often can denote unmovable obstacles in prophetic visions or apocalyptic visions. The bronze, likewise, uh, remember the the kingdom of bronze in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's um, dream, uh, so could denote some uh, like strength. But it's also been suggested that the bronze simply might be that you know he began having the vision in the morning, and now the sun is setting, and so that's the color of the mountains. So I don't know how much we can say for certain about that, but that's what the image is. You've got these four chariots coming out from between these. Um, mountains. These horses are are in good shape. They're multicolored. And Zechariah asks, what are these? And the angel answers him, these are going out to the four winds of heaven. So they're to go out to all the earth, essentially, just like the horses from chapter one, um, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So Zechariah is in Jerusalem, and that's where the horses are right now. So once they've presented themselves before the Lord of all the earth, they're going to go out, and we expect them to go in all different directions, but you have actually uh, only three go out, actually go out, and they only go in two directions. So the chariot uh, drawn by the uh, black horses um, goes north, and the, white, the one drawn by the white horses follows it. It goes after it. Uh, the NIV, by the way, says that the that white chariot goes west. That is a textual emendation, where they have are actually uh, suggesting that the Hebrew is mistrans mis mistransmitted, and um, so they they've they're suggesting that it should be corrected to read west. Um, but there's not really I don't think there's really great reason for that. So I think that the imagery actually is suggestive. Uh, of the fact that God is specially, especially concerned with what's going on in the north. So although they are originally purposed to go out in all directions, the fact that they don't is part of the message. And the idea is that two of them are going north. And what is north? Uh, Babylon, Persia, right? That's, that's where they're going. And the exiles are there, um, those who have not yet returned, as well as the kingdom that God is going to bring to its knees. And um, remember that, like, uh, Cyrus, of course, has received a lot of accolades in the Bible. Isaiah even calls him a Mashiach, an anointed one, and a shepherd, right? But not all the kings that ruled Persia are given that kind of evaluation, apparently, in the biblical narrative. They're kind of like a mixed bag. Uh, but indeed, um, it is a violent empire, and we we shouldn't lose sight of that, and so there's plenty of judgment of God for them. So the two char chariots go north, and then the dappled one goes south, which, um, I don't know, seems to denote um, attention on Egypt. Okay, Egypt is still an important power in this time, and we've seen a bunch of oracles about the coming judgment on Egypt. Um, there might be the suggestion, if we do want to say that it's it's primarily concerning the fact that exiles are there. Keep in mind that most of the exiles were taken north, and you know, technically northeast to um, to Babylon, um, and you know, throughout throughout that empire. But also, uh, there's a significant Jewish community, as we saw in the Book of Jeremiah, that has gone to Egypt. So that might be what's in view there. But then, of course, note that um, 
hey, uh, the red horse, the the red horse drawn chariot, that one, where's it going to go? And it's going to stay in Israel. So attention is going to be required there as well um, for what God is going to do, whether defense from enemies and judgment on them or securing peace for his people. And they're going to go and patrol the earth, and they go, and, and it says at the end of the vision, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Um, so again, I mentioned the attention on the what's going on in Persia, very important in biblical prophecy, as we've seen in Daniel. Um, and now what does it mean that it's setting God's spirit? They are going to set God's spirit at rest there. Um, the expression in Hebrew is henichu et ruhi. So henichu is the verb to set at rest, and this uh, is derived from the verb from which Noah's name is derived from. Um, uh, so it's that, that kind of rest, nuach. And um, in this stem, and I've talked about Hebrew stems before, this is the hifil stem, um, this verb can mean to pacify or to satisfy. And in my opinion, that's, um, you know, makes good sense of this text, to, to pacify my spirit. So what they're going to do is going to please me, is going to see my purposes carried out um, in order that um, I will be at rest, okay? And and perhaps, too, here you have the idea that God gives rest from surrounding enemies, like the same sort of idea. So when enemies are subdued and God's people can live in peace, that's what will be accomplished. So if you take these visions together, the, the, the visions of the horses from chapter 1 and now here in chapter 6, just note the kind of like the closure here, because what's the issue in chapter 1? Well, they patrolled the earth, and all the earth is at rest, but Jerusalem has received no mercy. Jerusalem is, it, there's, you know, it's, it still needs—they need me to act on their behalf. And I noted, too, that the reason why the world is at rest actually is not really a good thing in chapter 1, because it's it's at rest not because God's kingdom has come, but it's this temporary worldly rest that happens, maybe in the words of the, um, the lampstand vision yesterday, right, by might and by strength rather than by God's Spirit. But um, using that same kind of contrast, right, that the peace that God is going to bring will come through his spirit and it will send his it will set his spirit at rest. So that's what I think is going on here in this vision of the four chariots and essentially the message that encapsulates the first um, five and a half chapters of Zechariah. Okay, then um, notice as I said the the visions part of of Zechariah is kind of over now. Now it's going to be more like direct teaching, although the teaching will be very heavy in symbolism and stuff. So they're kind of like visions, but it's not like Isaiah. Uh, it's not like Zechariah is like, "Hey, I saw this." So here in verse nine, the word of Yahweh came to me. More standard prophetic, uh, right? Take from the exiles, Cheldai, Tovia, and Yedaya, and they've recent. These are guys who have recently arrived from ba- Babylon, and go to the same the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And take from these three guys silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua. 
Now, Joshua, of course, is the high priest, and we've seen he figured very prominently into the uh, visions that we looked at yesterday, both in terms of being clothed with clean garments, despite the protestations of the Satan, and um, and and then also as a, a component in this uh, this lampstand vision. With, he's one of the olive trees, I suggested. So this gold that these guys have on them, this silver that they have on them, is to be made into a crown and put on Joshua's head. Now, um, uh, so so why why these three guys? Well, because they're from they're recently come from Persia, and it's not clear if these are guys who are just wealthy and so like the 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 what they have you know are they giving a tithe and this is made and it's it's unclear it could also be we know that persia also funded the building of the rebuilding of the temple and so it could be that these are parts of the funds that were brought from persia um like if you read the beginning of ezra there's silver and gold involved there in what cyrus is sending back and if it is from the treasuries of persia then um then there might be a note here of like how the treasures of the nations are to be brought into Jerusalem and brought into the temple. Remember how Haggai um, said this most recently in chapter 2, verse 7, uh, Isaiah 60, verse 5, and uh, verse 11 also um, feature that idea, as do other passages in the Bible. So, um, it's also interesting that Joshua is the one who receives the crown, not the one who represents the royal lineage of David, who's Zerubbabel right now, right? It's actually the priest who's crowned, and here we have, once again, this mingling of the role of the priest and the king, which, of course, is something we see in Jesus, who is both our king and our great high priest. And um, and then say to him, say to Joshua, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and remember we saw this yesterday too, the tzemach, um, we saw this in th- chapter 3, verse 8, uh, taken, as I noted then, from Jeremiah 23, 5 and 33, 15, okay, the, this Davidic branch, um, uh, behold, the, the, name, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of Yahweh. Um, so is this calling attention to Zerubbabel, right, the one who's actually descended from the line of David and the one whom we saw yesterday shall lay the foundation and the capstone uh, amidst shouts of grace, grace to it? So is there an eye on both of them, maybe, and Zerubbabel's not named? Or is it perhaps that the priest now is being identified as the branch? Either way, what you have is a mingling, once again, of this role of priest and king, um, in this symbolic act, this symbolic gesture. Um, uh, it is he who shall build the temple of Yahweh and shall bear royal honor. Remember, I talked about these eschatological arrows from, uh, from Zechariah. So the one who is the embodiment of the priesthood and the embodiment of the kingship shall build the temple of Yahweh, right? And that is indeed what Jesus does. Um, this temple imagery remains very strong in the New Testament, although we are give, it, is, it is transformed into like its ultimate new covenant phase. He shall build the temple of Yahweh, uh, he shall, um, uh, and the one who builds it shall bear royal honor, shall sit and rule his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. Once again, the mingling of the priest and the king. 
Um, notice the language there, there shall be a priest on his throne, strongly suggests that it is the um, the branch, right, the kingly branch who is building and is distinct from Joshua. Um, uh, and the council of peace shall be with them both. So you've got them both reigning on the throne of David and um, administering peace to God's people. And of course, again, the future arrows that are pointing from this are very strong. No governor and no priest truly did this. Um, the crown shall be in the temple of Yahweh. So the king, the symbol of kingship is in the place of God's dwelling with man as a reminder to these three guys and another guy whose name is Chain. And anybody who knows a few basic Hebrew words might know what that word is in Hebrew, grace. So a fourth individual is now introduced, and his name is Chain, grace. Um, starting to get a little bit of a feel, perhaps, um, for how apocalyptic imagery works, right? That it is it is drastically symbolic, and trying to paint literal pictures from it um, ends up—it might be a fun exercise, right? But it's it almost misses the point of it. Um, the, the last thing I'll say about this part is, again, notice the how this dovetails with um, the interpretation of the lampstand imagery from yesterday, that this light that is, is there um, is being fed perpetually from one tree that represents the priesthood and one tree that represents kingship. Then chapter 6 is rounded off by saying that those who are far off shall come to help build the temple, which could be taken as a promise of, of further um, exiles coming home, and um, uh, if, if we understand the building of the temple to be done in the time of the post-exilic period. But as I've gestured, um, there are those eschatological uh, arrows pointing future, which would might suggest the inclusion of Gentiles in the program of doing what God is setting out here to accomplish. And then finally it says, this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the, va- the voice of Yahweh your God. And um, perhaps a good way to understand that would be that, you know, God is promising a rebuilding of the temple, which will happen under them, and these things will be fulfilled under them, if they are able to walk with their God, and yet um, one of the dimensions that the old that the New Testament brings to this is that um, the the people are actually not able to do that yet, which is one signifier that this is not the inauguration of the new covenant, right? Because the ability to obey and to have the law written on your heart and all that that brings, um, so that all the people within the covenant are are kind of rowing in that direction is um, is something that has yet to be fulfilled under the old covenant and does not come until Christ has come. Okay, now verse uh, chapter rather seven in the fourth year of King Darius. So now this is the this is the uh, two years later, right the first part of the book being the second year in the eighth month, the word of the Lord comes once again to Zechariah. And um, speaks of a couple people um, n- whose names are Sar Etzer and Regem Melik, who, uh, as well as someone named others, their men have come from Bethel uh, 
to entreat the favor of Yahweh, uh, presumably in Jerusalem. And they ask about weeping and abstaining in the fifth month as they have done for so many years. Now, it actually comes out as you read through the chapter that there's actually weeping and abstaining going on uh, in months other than the fifth month. And probably what this is about is that uh, if you look back at 2 Kings 25.8, that is the month that Babylon actually came in and destroyed and burned the temple. And so this is apparently mourning for that. And so are we to keep on going on and doing that? And the response to that is, uh, is a question. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, as I said, there are other months where this is going on. So the seventh month, I think most people think, is the assassination of Gedaliah, who is the governor who was appointed over Judah after the Babylonians destroyed the city. So that, too, is another uh, traumatically tragic event. And we will see yet other months come in that they are fasting and abstaining from food and mourning. So these 70 years that you've been doing all this, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat or drink, uh, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So whether you're fasting or whether you're eating, hasn't this all always kind of been about you? Has it really, you know, you know? So you're you're mourning this terrible thing that happens, but where is the repentance? Where is the change? And you can see what he com- what he what where he goes with this. He says, uh, "Were these not the words the, that Yahweh proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was was inherited and inhabited and prosperous, with cities around her, and, and the south and the lowland were inhabited?" Right? Weren't these the words of the prophet that? Uh, the same thing that I say now to you, verses 8 and 9, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, let none of you dis- devise evil against one another in your heart. Um, that Those are the things that God required of you then, this is the thing that they require of you now. And you're coming here, you're not doing this, presumably, and you're coming here asking Hey, does God still want us to fast? Well, you know, was that was that a thing that God asked you to do anyway? Like, is is the measurement of your godliness how strongly you're commemorating these national tragedies, which, by the way, came as a result of God's judgment against you? No, the things that the Lord requires you of you are things like this, and so that's the thing that you need to be concerning about. Those are the things you should be inquiring about God for. Um, and just like your fathers heard this, the words that, the, that, that Yahweh proclaimed by the former prophets, they, and then it sounds very similar to the beginning of chapter 1, refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears, um, their hearts became diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts sent by his spirits through the former prophets. As I called, they would not hear, and so they called and I would not hear. The reason God was not hearing them was because they disregarded the things that I told them were actually important. And it is these things of how do you treat one another? Are you executing righteousness and judgment and love in the land? And so I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations, um, and the land was went, was left desolate, and no one went to and fro in it. Um, and then in chapter 8, you get a future hope for Jerusalem. And God tells them, 
uh, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, or as I always say, zealous zealousness. I am zealous for her with great wrath, right? Because the the they have, uh, as chapter two verse eight said, they've touched the apple of my eye, right? Like I, I absolutely I care about you, and absolutely I will will punish those who have harmed you. Um, and, but as for you, okay, I've returned to Zion. I'm here with you now. Um, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the faithful city, the mountain of Yahweh of hosts, the holy mountain. Old men and women are going to sit in the streets again, and uh, the the boys and girls will be playing in the streets. Like, it will be good again, and it will be better. Does this sound good to you? And he says, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant, should it also be marvelous in my sight, right? You want this, I want this. Uh, behold, I will save my people from the east country, the west country. I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of the of Jerusalem, and the heart of the covenant will be established. They shall be my people. I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. And you who were there when the work began, let your hands be strong. You who who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth mouth of the prophets. Uh, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of Yahweh of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Um, there was no safety from the foe for him who went in or him who went out or him who came in. And I set every man against his neighbor. And remember, uh, this was a concern uh, kind of where the book of Haggai began in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Remember, like, uh, there's there's been all this frustration about the uh, uh, about the yields of crops that you're give, giving, right? Like you come over wanting this many measures of grain, and you only have this many, and right there's there's all these bad things that have happened because I haven't been with you. But look, I'm here now. Okay, um, there will be sowing of peace. The vine will give its fruit. The earth will give its produce. The heavens will give its 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 due. As you've been a byword, so I will save you. You will be a blessing. Fear not. Let your hands be be strong. But then again, you go down to verse fifteen. Uh, sorry, verse sixteen. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares Yahweh. Okay, These are the things that your fathers didn't do, despite the prophets who were sent to them. Right, That's what he just said in chapter 7, verse 10. So these things, I, I am standing here. I am here. I am committed to this. I am ready to bless you. But you need to repent, and you need to walk with me, and you need to walk according to what to what is right. Um, this isn't just going to happen automatically because your ancestors have a covenant had a covenant with me. I've judged in the past for sin, and I will continue to judge for sin. And so, regarding the question of fasting, go down to verse nineteen. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the fast of the fourth month which is when the city was breached, the fast of the fifth month, which I've already said was when the temple was destroyed, the fast of the seventh month, which was uh, when Gedaliah was assassinated, as I said, and the fast in the tenth month, which is when the siege began. All these terrible things that happened to Jerusalem that you've been commemorating uh, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. It, in, in other words, what I'm going to do for you 
what I will do for my future covenant people will be so good that it will eclipse any reason you have for mourning, even mourning over the worst things that have happened to you. Um, and then notice the way that it ends with this, this future hope, and it's not just going to be about you, Israel. Peoples shall come, the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I myself am going, you know, are you going to come? It's going to be like, you know, like that's the exciting thing. That's the event. Let's go. Let's go. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem. Again, something that we don't really see fulfilled until this happens in the gospel. They, they, many peoples from strong nations, those people who are in the scope of the Abrahamic promise all the way back in Genesis 12, shall come and seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. And then this ends in verse 23 with one of my favorite descriptions of this in the Old Testament. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew— saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. All right, let's go now to the book of Jude. So Jude, um, or as it is written in Greek, Eudas, this is uh, from Judah, right, which is the tribe of Judah. Um, it is the same name as Judas, the most famous one being Judas Iscariot, but there's a bunch of other Judases in the New Testament. And the question is, well, which of any of these uh, is the writer of this book. And most likely, and this has been widely believed ever since the uh, early days of the the church right, the church fathers who you know wrote about authorship and things like that, that this indeed is one of the brothers of Jesus. And the the um, so the reason the way we can tell that from the book itself, like they might know it from other traditions. But the way we can kind of see that from the from the book itself is this principle of what's called disambiguation. So the name Judas, right? It is a very very common name in the new in the New Testament time among Jewish people, of course. And so you can't just say Judas; you have to specify which Judas. You have to use disambiguators. So which Judas? Oh, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So that's why, you know, one of the disambiguators for very common names in the New Testament, like we don't we don't need it for rare names, um, but they're they're given for common names. Like it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Like that's in fact there's very interesting speech patterns in the New Testament that uh, that show that when when the crowds are actually speaking, that's how they refer to him. Which Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet from Nazareth. So here, Jude brother of James. And again, that's a common disambiguator that we see. But then, of course, we might ask, well, which James? Because James isn't a super rare name either, right? That would seemingly require a disambiguator. But notice that this doesn't have that here, just James. And remember, we saw the same thing with James, uh, the author of the letter of James, right? Jacob, um, back, back when we did that letter. And what was the reasoning there? Well, it has to be a James who is so prominent in the New Testament church that he doesn't require a disambiguator, and that James would almost certainly be the brother of Jesus. So if this is Judas, the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus, then this would be another brother 
of Judas, who in fact is named in the Gospels. In Matthew 16, I'm sorry, 13.55 and Mark 6.3, the brothers of Jesus are named. And you've got James there, and you've also got Judas, or as he's called in the English translations of this book, Jude. So that's most likely who this is. Um, and I just would note, as I did with James, uh, all New Testament evidence suggests that during Jesus's lifetime, they were not convinced that their brother was the Messiah for one reason or the other, but came to faith afterwards. Um, I note that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists James as a distinct um, individual who uh, who was witness to Jesus's resurrection. I think it's fair to assume the same for, for Jude. And of course, witnessing one's brother raised from the dead has uh, the tendency of not too surprising to change one's opinions about him and allegiance about him. We don't know why they didn't believe, right? I, I don't think that means that Jesus was shady or something like that, and, and they knew it because they were in his family. There's a lot of reasons why someone might have to not believe, and, and we just don't know what was the source of their unbelief during Jesus's earthly ministry. <clears throat> so he addresses this to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ— May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, in terms of whom this letter is written to, it's very difficult to know, but there are some pretty intimate links between this letter and 2 Peter, so it might be safe to say that the same addressees as 2 Peter, which of course was not that specific either, right, just just um, written to a number of Gentile churches throughout, um, uh, throughout like modern-day Turkey, um, you know, Asia Minor and stuff, that may be uh, the best that we can do for the letter of Jude. So he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so something that we as Christians share, and I really wanted to write a letter to you, kind of going into that and 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 encourage you, encouraging you directly on the basis of that, maybe explaining that. That was my initial plan, but given the circumstances, I have found it actually necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So uh, this was not what I intended to have to write to you about, but he's found out about something that means that they need to um, be diligent, whether in their beliefs, in their conduct, in whom they're listening to, right? There's something that is troubling the church or churches that it is that um, that Jude is aware of that he feels supersedes his the necessity to write them about other matters and now he's got to address this. Of course, notice that it refers to the faith here that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the idea here is going to be look. It has already been established and taught by the apostles, which is something that he also brings out in this letter, um, what is to be believed. And so new stuff, new spins on Christianity, on what it means to follow Jesus, on what God requires of us through him, um, new takes on that are to be viewed with an inherent level of suspicion because our faith has been delivered. And so serious substantive modifications to that are always going to be a problem to one degree or another. And then he reveals the situation. Certain people have crept in, so you've got false teachers once again, 
unnoticed, so maybe the leaders in your church have not been as diligent as they need to in noticing when false teaching is present in their church, or perhaps there is they've been using deceptive means. Um, and long ago, they are of the kinds of people who are long ago designated for condemnation. And so then the, uh, the big bulk of this letter is going to be Jude giving a whole lot of examples about those who were destined for destruction since long ago, destined for condemnation, and show the ways in which those who are teaching are similar to them, and not uh, both in their the content of their teaching and in their um, uh, their their destiny. What what will happen to them, of course, if they do not repent and turn to the truth? These are ungodly people, and they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The word is aselgaya license, licentiousness. So this is an abuse of the gospel of grace, Okay, something that we see happened a lot in the New Testament era, um, and indeed happens today. But basically, they take the fact that God is gracious towards us, and they turn that into, well, why don't we—I guess that means we're good with God, so why don't we just live in sin? It shouldn't be a problem. And they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ in so doing. And now it does kind of seem, based on um, a number of the examples that he cites or illustrations that he's going to cite, that the kind of aselgaya that these people are perverting the gospel of grace into is of the distinctly sexual uh, sort, although it might be broader than that as well. So basically, I mean, this could be very very similar— to the reasoning, I'm sure, of many of us who struggle with sexual sin, right? Like, God is gracious to me, so I can engage in sexual immorality. I can do this, you know, God's going to forgive me, God's—and, and and you know, there are a lot of levels of that. As a pastor, um, I, I see a lot of engaged couples living together, which is kind of, I think, a scandal in the modern church. Um where it's almost without doubt that this is going on, and you know, and and other people, you know, just you know, people who claim the name of the Lord Jesus, engaging in gross forms of sexual sexual immorality. And I understand that there is that the struggle with like pornography and online stuff is very, very, very difficult. That can be a very difficult topic to shake. That could can take years to shake. But you need to do what you can to cut off your hand re- regarding that. Um, this is a serious matter, and um, and simply reasoning God is good and He will forgive me is not going to cut it. That's what these teachers are doing. Um, I'm not saying that everybody who s- falls to this is automatically going to hell, but I am saying this is a sin that God takes very very seriously, and. Um, and when we find ourselves falling to that, we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. We should not be justifying it. We should not be saying, oh, it's fine, it's no big deal. Um, no, this is a sin that needs to be like very repented from when we fall to it. So um, first example, I, I, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, so Notice he's he's gesturing here to a bit of erosion about this, right? Like, you knew this one time, and I need to remind you about it now, that um, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt—and that is an interesting way of 
speaking of whom the deliverer from Egypt was, right? Um, but actually, interestingly, I might remind you that Paul speaks this way in 1 Corinthians 10.9, remember, where he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Um, you know, obviously talking about the wilderness generation there. So there is an idea in the New Testament that uh, the God who, that Jesus shares the identity of the God who led people out of Egypt, and the New Testament is no problem talking that way. And it is another one of these just subtle ways in which the New Testament reveals Jesus to share in the identity of Yahweh. So I, I want to remind you that that Jesus did this and afterward destroyed those who do not believe. So this is, uh, you know, kind of pretty general, right? Because there's actually a lot of a bunch of different incidents uh, in which this this occurs: the people grumbling and God responding with judgment. And in fact, numerous New Testament writers, not least of which Paul, whom I just cited, but you also get this, for example, in Hebrew, in Hebrews, um, where where they they fell in the wilderness as a warning to coming generations that God, yes, delivers you graciously, invites you to be His people, but you that does not mean you can live in grumbling and rebellion against him and just resting on your laurels and saying oh i'm uh, things are good i'm fine so that's the first example the second one is a little bit trickier and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day so on the face of it we see pretty much what this is, right? Angels who are rebellious. We know that God will judge um, evil spiritual beings as well, right? Um, and indeed, we've seen both 1 Peter and 2 Peter speak in this way, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, 2 Peter 2, 4. Um, and uh, one thing that I noted there was that there is actually um, an interpretation that is was common in Judaism of at this time, not just in this book, but particularly in the book of First Enoch, in chapters six through twelve of it, that uh, really went on to speculate about that incident in Genesis six, where the sons of man see daughters of man and take them for themselves, uh, really speculating that like, yeah, this is these are angelic beings who are having sex with human women. And um, and the offspring of that union are these giants, these Nephilim. And um, remember, I noted when we went through Daniel that some of these beings are um, referred to as watchers. And uh, and so a lot of people will hold that the interpretation that Enoch gives to that passage, which, by the way, is not the interpretation that I offered. And I've never claimed to be right about everything. I'm not saying we should defer to Enoch, but you know some people would find the fact that Jude is using that here as um, confirmation of a position contrary to the one that I articulated um, in this podcast. But yeah, I mean, to a lot of people, this seems you know to very much be leaning on Enoch's interpretation of that. Enoch, of course, is what is considered a pseudepigraphical work, as well as the other books of Enoch. Pseudepigraphical again meaning false writing, right? Pseudo-graphe, falsely attributed to an author, like not really written by Enoch, although throughout the ages there have been different 
explanations as to, well, maybe this does accurately uh, portray what Enoch did and said and stuff like that, but I'm not going to dive into that. Um, the Enoch, it, it is a particularly late Jewish book compared to the other Old Testament works, although some people would date it before the book of Daniel, interestingly. I, I think I kind of gestured to that when we were going through uh, Daniel. Um, but yeah, if people... R- uh, people who who consider such things, who who work in this area, would consider this to be kind of like um, the closest that the New Testament gets to kind of like affirming that storyline, uh, in particular because of the third um, uh, uh, thing that is cited here, where he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So notice that... Um, verse six doesn't really say what exactly the angels did beyond that, that, that they did not stay within their own position of authority. But here it says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality. So the logic is, well, the likewise here implies that the angels are doing the same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah did. Um, I'm not uh, entirely convinced of that. Like that's definitely possible, but I think the likewise here also works with the fact that the ungodly people that Jude is warning against in their own days, those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, according to verse 4, that that could be what the likewise is referring back to. So I'm not sure that that's entirely determinative. However, this is not the last time we're going to see First Enoch, and so I don't think that that seals the deal on like all that needs to be said about why Jude may or is using this book. If you're a little confused about what I'm saying about it, just wait till we get to uh, verse 14. So um, so the first example, wilderness generation. Second example, angels being punished for sin. Third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gets back, likewise, the uh, yet in like manner, rather, these people, and he calls them these people or these several times in this paragraph— these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I think it's interesting that it appealed to dreams here, that they may be com- um, claiming some kind of special spiritual revelation. Uh, and then you get the fourth e- example that he cites. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses— so we've met Michael already, right, in Daniel— and he's contending with the devil over the body of Moses, and he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead says to Satan or the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And you're like, well, where did that happen? Well, here is another pseudepigraphical book that Jude is now quoting, and that is the Assumption, or sometimes it is called the Testimony of Moses. These are writings that are popular among Jewish people at this time that Jude obviously expects his audience to know, which I think is interesting because that could suggest that the book is written to churches where he has confidence that there are a lot of Jewish people in, so they would know what he's referring to. Um, Although, you know, maybe he could assume that Christians would have been reading this stuff as well. I think that that's less of a safe assumption. Uh, But yeah, so that's his fourth example. And then he goes back to what these people are doing. These people, there it is again, verse 10, blaspheme all they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. Now, um, 
I want to just note that Jude very much reads in like through this section as a tirade, right? It's not like this detailed thing, like about exactly why what they're saying is wrong. It's more like just going off on them and saying like, essentially like their works are so evidently evil that anyone who truly knows the Lord should be able to see this for what it is and should realize that the gospel of God's grace does not excuse this kind of behavior. But yeah, so that's the next thing that they do, what verse 10 just said. Uh, And then we get another example. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. And then you get a sixth example. And abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They're probably referring to Numbers 22 through 24, although Balaam's really horrible thing was in uh, chapter 25 of Numbers, where he leads the people into idolatry at Baal of... uh, uh, at at Peor, worshiping Baal of Peor, which is identified, uh, his involvement is identified in Numbers thirty one sixteen, and then you get a seventh example: those who perished in Korah's rebellion, which happens in Numbers sixteen. So a lot of Old Testament examples here, and again, these are hidden reefs. Though the Greek word is spilades. Uh, which this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It could mean rocks or reefs, like, a, you know, underwater, like reefs. Um, but it could also mean blemish or spot, and which I think makes a lot more sense. They are blemishes at your love feasts. These probably of reference to the meals that Christians have together, where the Lord's Supper accompanies that, such as we read of in 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, people are all coming there to eat together. And even in Acts, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread. They're blemishes at these things. These things, this should be a celebration of unity and the goodness that is ours in Christ. And instead, these people are there, and they're like blemishes on this. They, As they feast with you without fear, they are shepherds who feed themselves. Think of Ezekiel 37 there. They're waterless clouds, okay, swept along by the winds. They are fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted in late autumn, right? You're not getting anything from trees then. There are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. There are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, right? Because uh, wandering stars, you might not see them soon. Uh, all of these are very interesting, vivid images of of the you know, futility of their lives, of the the worthlessness of their presence in the church, and even the harm that they bring, all con- uh, encouraging us to kind of like muse on like what, how false teachers might be like these things. It was also about these that Enoch, seventh from Adam, so now we're back to Enoch, given a, a, an eighth example now, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, when you first start reading that, you're like, okay, Enoch, seventh from Adam, got it, Genesis 5, we know who that is. But then when did he say all this stuff? Well, this is actually a direct quote from First uh, Enoch chapter one verse nine. Now I just I feel at this point I need to say, you know, kind of how I think about this because the troubling aspect, of course, is here Jude is quoting books that are not scripture. 
And I mean, they don't even belong to the books that, you know, we might call the Apocrypha, which might be nicer to say, call it a, the Deuterocanonical works. You know, the books that uh, Catholics have in their Bibles uh, or the Orthodox, although the list of them, of uh, Deuterocanonical works in each church's Bibles <clears throat> are different. In fact, the only branch of Christendom that actually regards the Book of Enoch, First Enoch, as Scripture is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So, does this mean that Jude is like affirming the scriptural value? Well, no, and there I, I will ad- eventually be addressing this in Journey Through Scripture Read. Um, notice that this is not quoted as scripture, right? New, and New Testament authors do this. They they quote they are allowed to quote works that are not biblical, that are not canonical, that are not scriptural. Uh, think, for example, a very clear example of this: Paul in his message at the Areopagus in Acts 17, quotes two pagan philosophers approvingly. That doesn't mean he thinks those are scripture, right? So I think, actually, it's not that difficult to think through Jude's use of these books, of both both First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. He is simply quoting things that he, under, he knows his people will understand. He is quoting stories that he knows that they know, um, and without reference to whether or not they're scriptures. Notice he's just citing events. He's not He's not appealing to biblical authority here, uh, or like, you know, inspirational authority. Uh, he's just quoting these events. A, a comparable thing would be for me to say, like, um, you know, you're my brother in Christ, like Jonathan was to David, like Barnabas was to Paul, like Sam was to Frodo. Right, like yeah, I can expect that most Christians hearing that will know exactly what I mean by that, and that none of them will say, "Oh, wait, are you saying that Tolkien is inspired scripture?" I think that that's the kind of thing that's going on here. Okay, so uh, verse seventeen: You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. So this, of course, is very commensurate with a lot of teachings about, you know, these last times, these last days in which we all live in, that this will be, we the Church will have to deal with this stuff during this age. Interestingly, this is almost certainly a quote of 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Now, some people disagree as to which book uses which. Some would say it's the other way around. I think the fact that Jude is the one who is consciously quoting here indicates that he it is the letter that is written second. But notice there that he he's, he's pretty much citing that as something that the apostles of our Lord said to you and should be believed in, and he's wording it in the way that Peter words it in that letter, which suggests that Jude knows Second Peter very well, of course. Um, it is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of spirit. That's what we're looking at. Notice divisions here, something Paul is also very concerned with. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, so doing what you need to build yourself up, meditation on God's Word, sound teaching, instruction, walking in God's ways, as well as prayer, and prayer knowing that when you pray you are in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's what you need to be concerned with, not with what these jokers are trying to tell you and teach you. 
uh, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life? Are you wait? And that's interesting because a lot of these examples are individuals who will be receiving. I mean, they're all individuals who will be receiving judgment. And with some of them, he says it explicitly. Yet here, what do we wait for? We who keep ourselves in the Word of God and steer clear of the kind of garbage that these people are advocating, what do we wait for? The mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And being those who have mercy, have mercy on those who doubt, right? Those who are, who are, who are struggling in their faith and are struggling with trusting God, be merciful to them, okay? They are not, they, they are not lost causes, and save others by snatching them out of the fire. So those who are wandering, whether through sin or through believing weird things, don't write them off, but be merciful to them, not just what you say to them, right, but how you say it, how you act towards them. Um, To others, once again, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we're talking about how to interact with those who are engaged in false belief and in licentious living, but you need to do, when you do that, when you minister to such people, have fear in your heart, knowing, like, because that stuff can suck you in too, right? And you don't hate the people, but you hate even the garment that is stained by sin, okay? And that's kind of like the line we work, would walk when we minister to sinners, knowing that we ourselves are vulnerable. And then he ends with a beautiful doxology, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, the things I'm writing to you about that I'm concerned of, God is the one who actually will grant the power to persevere through them and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. All right. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we are beginning the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and I, for one, can't wait. And until then, keep reading Scripture, take care, and bye-bye.